The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Episode 339 of The Bowery Boys. James H. Williams and the Red Caps of Grand Central Terminal. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash boys. Hello and welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Tom Myers. Greg Young is off this week, but I won't be alone today. We will soon be joined by Eric K. Washington, the author of Boss of the Grips, The Life of James H. Williams, and The Red Caps of Grand Central Terminal. Now, I want you to imagine Grand Central Terminal in, say, 1930. You're probably familiar with the classic black and white photos of light streaming down from, from Grand Central's high windows. The image that I instinctively flashed to uh, was apparently taken by photographer Hal Morey in 1930 for the New York Central Railroad, although many similar images exist uh, with those incredible beams of light projected down to the floor as, as if in a cathedral, while silhouettes stand about the vast interior. These tiny figures stand about single or in small groups of two or three people, you can really only make out in the photo overcoats um, and hats. Somebody is reading a paper. Some are probably waiting for a track to be posted. It's 1930. The nation's economy is crashing, but this is Grand Central at its most majestic. Of course, it's a major passageway for commuters, but it's also the most famous destination for long-distance train travel in America. But then, considering that, when I take a, a closer look at this photo, you know what I don't see? Nobody is fumbling with their suitcases. That would have been me in 1930. But here, nobody seems to have luggage. But then if you look a little closer still, down in the lower left-hand corner of, of this Hal Morey photo from 1930, there's a blur of activity. It's, it's drenched in sunlight from those high windows, so it's bleached out a bit. But you can tell that it's people in motion, people who seem to be leaving the station. And it's difficult to say precisely, but I think you can make out what appears to be a bag or a suitcase propped up on somebody's shoulder. Somebody headed to the exit with another person, a passenger, maybe two, following their lead. If my hunch is right, Bags are being carried for an arriving passenger through the majestic Great Hall of Grand Central by a red cap. It's a wonder that this photo didn't capture more of them, because in 1930, hundreds of red caps worked at Grand Central and, and at Penn Station, waiting for trains, waiting to help passengers with their luggage. Perhaps we don't see more of them in this photo because they were near the tracks, waiting for an arriving train, or, or maybe they were busy greeting passengers who had just arrived. But these men, these red caps, 
were a workforce of hundreds of African-American men by 1930. And they really were an essential part of the long-distance railroad experience in America. And as we'll hear today, passengers relied on red caps for more than simply grabbing their bags. They were navigators. They helped with taxis. They offered advice. They offered a warm greeting. And at Grand Central, this army of helpers for decades was under the strict supervision of one man, James H. Williams. Williams, who was African-American himself, was referred to as the chief by his redcaps. And it wasn't just the redcaps who called Williams the chief. So too did thousands of passengers who felt that they knew him. And even the press called him the chief, the press who also covered him regularly in their stories. He was a friend to mayors, to governors, even occupants of the White House, many of whom he greeted in the terminal personally. In his 2019 book, Boss of the Grips, author Eric K. Washington tells the remarkable life story of James Williams, which stretches from 1878 to 1948. He also tells the story of Grand Central Terminal, and specifically of the red caps who work there, especially during the terminal's heyday in the first four decades of the 20th century. Along the way, the book chronicles how New York's African-American enclaves and communities developed and moved around the city. And that story, that huge story, is told through the lens of this one often underappreciated and yet instrumental man, James Williams. He was the chief of the Red Caps, but he was also an underreported figure in the Harlem Renaissance. Author Eric K. Washington is an independent historian and the author of Boss of the Grips, The Life of James H. Williams, and the Red Caps of Grand Central Terminal, published by Livright, W.W. Norton. This summer, the New York Academy of History honored the book as a winner of its Herbert H. Lehman Prize for Distinguished Scholarship in New York History, and the Municipal Arts Society named it a finalist for its Brendan Gill Prize. Eric's recent fellowships include Columbia University's Community Scholars Program, CUNY's Leon Levy Center for Biography, as well as the MFAH Dora Marhouse Residency. Eric is the owner of Tagging the Past, which endeavors to reconnect forgotten history to present landscapes through articles, talks, and tours. And it's my pleasure to welcome back to the show, Eric K. Washington. Welcome, Eric. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, and I say welcome back because you joined us last summer for our um, Secrets of Upper Manhattan show. You and I toured Trinity's Uptown Cemetery together. That's right, Trinity Church Cemeteries. And it was another hot day. (laughs) (laughs) Well, nice to have you back. And um, thank you as well, because I have spent the last several days utterly immersed in Boss of the Grips. It's been an absolute treat to be whisked away to New York in the 1920s, even New York in the 1930s. These were times of joyfully packed train terminals, (laughs) something that is hard to kind of even fathom today. Um, I thought we could start with the basics here. You've written this book on James Williams, although, as I just said in the intro, it really is about so much more. It's about this man and all the different aspects of New York that he touched. What drew you to James Williams and his story? I came upon him while doing a tour, a series of tours for 
the Municipal Art Society, uh, which had a charge of doing regular daily tours in concert with the Centennial, which was 2013 of Grand Central. Of Grand Terminal. Central, right. Okay. So I was asked to do it and I was kind of hesitant because I, you know, I know Grand Central, but it's not really my beat. But I thought this will be fun. And I, I wanted to write something about uh, African-Americans in the railroad. I knew that there was a long history. I didn't know precisely. I knew about the Pullman porters. Mm-hmm. Um, so as I started, you know, digging around for information about the black workers in the station, I quickly learned um, about James H. Williams. And so when I learned about Williams, that he was the first black red cap that was hired and it influenced the hiring of the staff that followed, which became predominantly black, Mm -hmm. almost exclusively black, like Mm -hmm. 99.9.9%. But all, but not just at Grand Central, other stations across the country were starting to do the same thing. So he had that kind of influence. Yeah. So that was sort of the basis for my coming across this gentleman. Yeah. And it kept me busy because it's, uh, you know, everyone's life, you know, we say this kind of glibly, kind of touches uh, so many other people and so many other entities. And this was very true with Williams. And we'll be talking about the different, you know, New York's that he touched. But I did want to start for a moment here on the subject of red caps. Um, Mm -hmm. I'd love to hear just a little bit about how, you know, how they worked during their heyday and maybe to take us there, we can just imagine that, you know, um, we are alighting at Grand Central aboard the 20th century. We've we've taken the night train from Chicago to New York um, because I think you write that it is a morning arrival in New York City. Right. So would there have been red caps on the train or were they waiting in the station? No. So this was a major distinction that I should make about red caps, a, a couple of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, one was, as the title suggests, uh, boss of the grips. So grips was a term that meant literally the grip or handle of your valise of suitcase, if ah. you will. Uh, but it was also referred to the people who handled it. Mm-hmm. So they were called the grips. And they were not the same as porters on the train. Well, this is kind of interesting, and I touch upon this in, in, in the story. Porters were literally to carry something. Something that is portable is something that is carryable. Mm-hmm. Um, and often, you know, the, the definition of the job, if somebody is a porter, it's often janitorial or, or it could be any number of things. But it kind of implies that there's sort of um, physical mm-hmm. um, maneuvering that's taking place, lugging, schlepping, uh, if you're a New Yorker. <laughs> you know. And it's interesting because when uh, the job was created in 1895, uh, by George H. Daniels, who's uh, the general passenger agent for New York Central. Uh, he started with a dozen men. They were essentially multilingual, like bilingual, if you will. And it was emphasized when the system was put into place that they were not porters, with the understanding that they're not the cleanup crew and they're not supposed to be piling on stuff you know, for them to carry. They were then what exactly? They were helpers? They were helpers. And for the general passenger population, but quite specifically for women who were increasingly in the in the 90s traveling unchaperoned. Mm. Uh, it was a new age of women, 
you know, being much more independent in their in their movements. So these red caps were looking out for women who might need assistance when well, they, they arrived. They were there to greet. They were there to greet uh, people and give information. They were supposed mm-hmm. to be, you know, sort of walking encyclopedias, uh, navigators, as as you said in in your introduction, but specifically to be sort of gallants, sort of like squires, like um, you know, can I help you with your valise, with your hat box, uh, but really light things. They're not there to pull wagon loads of all of your steamer trunks and that sort of thing. Right. But by 1930, if we had pulled into Grand Central on this 20th Century Limited, would there have been red caps who were waiting there on the platform to help me out? Yes. So if you arrived at Grand Central from Chicago on the 20th Century Limited Mm -hmm. and uh, you pull in in the morning, you would have seen a number of red caps on the platform. And it was routine when the train was expected and as it's pulling into the station where they would run down the stairs, bl- spread out so that they are able to greet people c- stepping off the cars like yourself and others. But they were there to immediately to assist you in carrying your stuff or getting you uh, directed in, you know, toward the subway or the trolley or a taxi. And what if I, you know, what if I was a, a arriving celebrity? Would somebody have called ahead? Would they have known that I was on? Because celebrities were taking the 20th century all the time. Yes. And if you were a celebrity, uh, there would have been a number of things. Uh, it was not uncommon, obviously, for, for celebrities to step off the train. There were certain celebrities, that, however, that would wire ahead like Mrs. Roosevelt, um, Teddy Roosevelt's wife, but also Eleanor Roosevelt or Governor Al Smith. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was sort of Williams's province to cater to most of the celebrities. Obviously, you know, there was bound to be more than one celebrity on the train and he didn't take care of all of them. But uh, it was understood rather symbolically that he would take care of the celebrities as opposed to just regular passengers. The celebrities were handled by the chief. But if we were just here on 1930, this normal day, getting off the train in the morning, and we saw all of these red caps coming up to the train to help us out or waiting for us on the platform... Would we have felt the presence or seen James Williams? Would we have seen their boss around or heard him somehow? Well, he was often stationed at the entrance to to the gate, particularly if you were boarding the 20th Century Limited, which was the most famous train in the world. And if you were boarding the train, he was often the first person you saw before Mm. you walked down the platform. And he was often the first person you saw if you were arriving and you were getting off the platform and many people would sort of frame the beginning and the completion of a trip with this familiar face, whether you spoke to him or not, it was just, it was a face that they knew and many people knew him. It was one writer said, and now I'm paraphrasing, I don't have the book in front of me. You were not a big shot unless Jim Williams greeted you. (laughs) The mental Rolodex he must've had must've been extraordinary. Um, Turning to his story, for a second. You write about his parents, John Wesley Williams and Lucy Ellen Spady. They moved to New York in 1873. Uh, they lived in Greenwich Village in the, the neighborhood referred to as Little Africa. It's fascinating. One of the things that is so fascinating about your book is that you chronicle the different African-American communities, mostly along Manhattan's west side and then up into Harlem and then up into the Bronx. Um, throughout this, throughout this time period. So James Williams then is born on August 4th, 1878, 
while the family is living at that point in today's Chelsea at 227 West 15th Street. Right. And that, that building is still occupied. It's still there. Wow. Probably the third of his siblings uh, who was born in that, in that apartment. And he would attend elementary school in the neighborhood. He did. He attended um, uh, elementary school just two blocks away on West 17th Street. Uh, that building is also still there. Let's hear it for preservation. Yes, I, I actually am hoping that it will be. It could become landmark. And then, really interestingly, in 1887, he got a job working for Charles Thorley, who was, uh, you write, quote, renowned as the florist of New York's aristocracy. Yes. Was, he, he gets this job as a floral delivery boy, and he's only, what, nine years old or 10 years old? Well, it was not unusual at the time, as, as we know, for child labor was rather common. And it's not clear how he came to get the job. We do. What is clear is that Thorley did put out advertisements in the paper, wanted, you know, floral messenger. Or, or, mm-hmm. And uh, he worked as a floral messenger for many years. And I always considered this as being part of James Williams's supplementary but equally vital education. Um, he, didn't, he never went beyond grade school. But being a floral messenger exposed him to a lot of the clientele who we would in later years know personally or be catering to in his capacity as chief of the Red Caps at Grand Central. Because he was, Thorley was the the florist to New York's top families. Exactly. So um, this was in what was the, you know, the early beginnings of the floral district on um, like 28th Street and Broadway. So it was sort of the hotel district. Uh, mm-hmm. Williams's father was working at this posh hotel, Sturdivant House, across the street. It was likely his father who saw the ad and, and said, "I got a couple of kids who you could hire." You know, we don't know this mm-hmm. for sure, but that's you know that was often how it happened. But I mean, Thorley was an astute businessman. He had this clientele in the Gilded Age for whom he would do bouquets for weddings. He would uh, cater for for funerals, for big banquets. You write about an elaborate uh, floral display at the Metropolitan Opera House. Yes, and that was that was a little bit later, it was in uh, 1902, and this was extraordinary because it's the Metropolitan Opera House, which at that time was located nearby in this, in, in, in this district. At 39th and Broadway. At 39th and Broadway, so it's in that general Ladies Mile, Fifth Avenue, Broadway, posh shopping uh, district. And it was logical, given Thorley's reputation, that he would have the commission to do uh, the floral displays, particularly for the arrival of Prince Henry of uh, Prussia. And Thorley also had a reputation for hiring African-Americans. And it was often said that his his uh, shops were almost exclusively managed by African-Americans. So in this regard, they were not only employment centers, but they were really communication centers. Because if you were a black patron or just a, you know, a black citizen and some sort of news was going on, or you need, or you maybe you were new to the city, uh, you might be able to pop in and say, um, do you know where I can stay? Is there a place where I can, mm. you know, rent a room or that's hiring? Or what happened down there? Or you know, Frederick Douglass just died because Williams was working there in 1895 when when that occurred. So you can imagine the dialogues that are going on. And uh, was this common for a businessman like Thorley, who is so prominent, to have an almost entirely black staff? It was not uncommon, but I would say it was it was unique. I think certainly within the black community where there were people who were considered allies and friends in terms of you know, who were in a position to, to give you jobs or use their influence 
to get you jobs or get you positions that might otherwise be closed to you. These people were known throughout the black community because, you know, they obviously they they were important. So it was not the most common thing in the world. Uh, certainly, uh, discrimination uh, was quite prevalent in the city, and so Thorley was one of those exceptions. James H. Williams was a floral messenger. In the old days, you would, you know, somebody would order flowers, and then somebody from the florist shop would, would deliver them. Usually, it was, you know, this was kind of entry level, if you will, but he would be the one. Often, it was a child. Uh, worker who would bring the flowers. But you can imagine if you ever had a paper route as a kid. Mm, I did, yeah. Okay, so yeah, you brought a paper to somebody's house and maybe they said, oh, let me, hold on one second. Oh, come on in, I have to have to find your, you know, your 10 cents mm-hmm. or whatever it costs at the time, you know. Mm-hmm. And so you're stepping inside. So you're not just standing there turning, you know, to the door. You're looking around and you're seeing. You're being introduced. You're being introduced, you know. It's like, oh, you know, my family has one of those or, oh, I wish we had one of those or and it's not even deliberate necessarily, but you're you're coming away with an appreciation of how other people outside of your own family sphere live and what they want, what they used to. And from that job, then I imagine he also learned quite a bit about tact, which would serve him throughout his entire career. Exactly. Uh, When to speak, uh, what to say, who to say it to. Um, how to exchange information. Uh, yeah. All of these would be very valuable and uh, transferable skills for him. And he would he would work for Thorley for more than a decade throughout the 1890s. But w- another thing that happens to James Williams is that he also meets a woman named Lucy um, with whom he would be married in January of 1897. And they would then relocate up to West 41st Street where they would have the first two of their children, Gertrude and Wesley. Right. So by the late 1890s, they have actually moved to a different African-American community in Manhattan, that being the neighborhood west of the theater district, uh, part of the Tenderloin. Exactly. And the Tenderloin is one of those sort of amorphous neighborhoods that's sort of yeah. uh, generally... Hard to define, right? right? Generally above 14th Street, which at, at 1900 is still being considered uptown, up to what we might now consider the Hell's Kitchen area. That was all sort of this amorphous area known as the Tenderloin. So they were always sort of within the Tenderloin, often referred to as the Black Belt that was west of the fancy Broadway district. But the fancy district and the black belt, these streets that constitute the black belt, which were never exclusively black, there was sort of a hodgepodge of black and maybe a poor Irish, you know, mm-hmm. were only a couple of blocks away from the fancy district. So they were convenient for the posh hotels on Broadway, most of whose staff, when he's growing up, like his father, are African-American. By the way, many of those buildings, many of those tenements still exist today, especially over in Hell's Kitchen. Exactly. A lot of those tenements still exist today. Uh, a lot of the crux of what we now call Hell's Kitchen of uh, West 53rd Street, those blocks are gone. But mm-hmm. otherwise, if you go a little far, farther west, you still get a sense of the tenement district that came a little farther east before it was raised to make the, the, the modern buildings that are there now. But then the Williams family would relocate, you write around 1903, up to Harlem which was being promoted at the time by an African-American realtor named Philip Payton, or the, considered the, the father of Harlem. Correct. So it's, so it's about 1903 that he moves his family up to 134th Street in Harlem. And this is, constitutes one of the first discernible waves of African-Americans. There are always African-Americans in Harlem. 
but in terms of this, what's going to be this wave of blacks moving up there who are sort of beckoned uh, mm -hmm. by this realtor, Philip Payton, the father of Black Harlem, as he's called. And they moved to 134th Street, which is where a lot of the initial buildings that get occupied by African-Americans start, and then they sort of fan out. So he's one of that first group. And that's in 1903, which is the same year that he's hired to be a red camp at Grand Central, kind of bringing these stories together. And in doing so, he was breaking the color line because the, the concept of the red cap had been developed in, 18, in the mid-1890s, right? Introduced in 1895. Right. But up until this point, uh, his hiring in 1903, the red caps had been exclusively white. Yes. So William starts at Grand Central in 1903. It's the same year that they break ground to create the building that we that exists there today. The terminal, yeah. Um, the Grand Central Terminal, the Terminal City, as, as it was referred to. So it's only eight years after the red cap system had been started in 1895, which was exclusively white. And then within a year of his being hired, it's almost exclusively black. By 1904. By 1904. So it seems that it was probably a concerted plan of the New York Central to convert it because they were probably losing... And there aren't, there isn't strict documentation on this, but there's reason to believe it's, you know, if you have skills, if you're white, you've got language skills, you could be promoted into some other job that's a little bit more desirable. And even though they're not supposed to be porters, they're not supposed to be, you know, overburdened with other people's belongings, you can imagine if you're a traveler and you're kind of weary and it's like, can you take this? hat box also oh this one's kind mm -hmm. of light <laughs> so mm -hmm. I, I, I bet the disillusionment happened rather rapidly and they figured you know i'm out of here and up until this point had they been on salary had the railroad been paying their red caps an actual wage or were they only relying upon tips so they had been on a salary it's not quite clear what the salary was Although there was suggestion that once they became all black, the salaries were less because, you know, they weren't unionized. So mm -hmm. uh, people could kind of determine at the drop of a hat, you know, what you were to be paid. But there was a, a sort of a major incident in 1905 where the station master uh, learned that they were taking tips. And you could see in early ads that travelers were counseled, uh, don't feel you have to tip. They work for the New York Central. They are salaried. Oh. And it didn't seem from the coverage that the station master was so offended by the idea that they were taking tips, but more that they were so successful <laughs> at it. Yeah, because you you write that about Jesse Battle, um, yes. who served as William's assistant chief. And he claimed at one point to save, be able to save $300 a month, which is something like, I looked it up, it, it translates to about $11,000 a month right now. Yeah, so you can imagine you can imagine how, how extraordinary that was. And even if it's, I mean, there's no way of knowing if battle was being hyperbolic, you know, but, <laughs> but you could sort of trust that he was making significantly more than he would have been getting just relying on whatever the paltry salary was that they were getting. But the upshot of that was, the station master said, okay, you want to take tips? You're not getting a salary. And he had the power to do that. And so they were relying exclusively on tips from then on. And But in that first decade then, when Williams is serving as a red cap, he's probably doing pretty well and is respected uh, by his superiors because in 1909, he was promoted to be the chief attendant 
of the Red Caps. Exactly. Why, why did they make him the boss? I think that because Williams, um, he had already been the first to to integrate the core, and he probably had a good deal of influence by people like Charles Thorley, people like Teddy Roosevelt, who he knew, of white, respected uh, civic leaders or businessmen mm-hmm. who would vouch for him. It's not clear who did vouch for him. There's no paperwork that's emerged to say a letter of recommendation. But one could be assured that it must have been somebody on the, the highest level of influence for New York Central to just decide to hire a black worker when that would have caused quite a ruckus, you know, at the time. And it seems like he took his new position very seriously. I mean, he was already thinking about the well-being of the men who worked for him. That same year in 1909, he organized a benevolent society called the Attendance Beneficial Association of the Grand Central Terminal. What was the purpose of that first um, benevolent society? So very soon after he's made chief of the Red Caps, six years after his hire in 1909, um, you have to keep in mind that Grand Central Terminal, is, it's, in, it's under construction. And it's being built over the old Grand Central Station. But the trains are still running. So you can imagine how hazardous it was. And there were accidents. Mm-hmm. There were fatal accidents. And it sort of emphasizes the fact that they don't have insurance. Uh, they're mm-hmm. fairly expendable. They get sick like anybody else does. William's own daughter is in the hospital. Uh, she actually dies this year, the same year, 1909. And um, they have nothing to really protect themselves. So one of the, his first sort of demonstrative actions that show him as a, as a leader is that he calls for a meeting of all, all the Red Caps of Grand Central down on West 53rd Street to organize this uh, mutual aid society or a benefit society for Red Caps. And it sort of works um, rather like a membership, if you will. People put in money and that way if somebody gets sick, uh, if they are out of a job, whatever, there's some sort of financial backup to keep them stable. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was not the first. This was sort of a common thing that was done in the black community and for decades. You had a lot of fraternal orders and what have you that would have these sort of things. But certainly in his position, this was something just given the nature of the job that signified that he was attuned to making sure that his men not only had this job and you know they could own this department for whatever it was worth, but it wasn't going to kill them, you know, if they, if they got sick, yeah. they got fired or... Yeah, but it just shows that he's really, he's caring for the men who worked for him. Exactly. And it really is, it illustrates what's commonly called, you know, among black uh, men and women who are, are taking this initiative at the time. He was a race man. He was uh, a diplomat. He got along well. That was probably what, what recommended him for this job, that he could mm-hmm. converse and I- interact with blacks and whites people of different classes, but he had a particular interest in the uplift of his race. And this was an urgent theme of the time. Uh, so Williams was definitely a race man and, and establishing this mutual aid society was was part of that. And it wouldn't be the last because he would also be establishing athletic leagues. He'd be establishing musical groups with sort of a similar purpose. Exactly. It's, you know, it's it's interesting because you, you take the nature of this job. One of the things that you have to uh, maintain as much as wanting to be able to maintain having enough to to pay your rent is keeping up the morale. It's easy to lose your morale in, in this kind of mm-hmm. job. So one of the things that he does is he establishes an orchestra because a lot of the mu- the workers are professional grade musicians. Mm-hmm. A uh, a quartet 
uh, for many years, there are people who remember going to Grand Central as a destination at holiday time, Christmas holidays, to hear carols of the Red Caps playing and, and performing from the balconies, uh, just like people go to see to Rockefeller Center to see the Christmas tree. Right. Um, he establishes a, a baseball team. Baseball is America's favorite pastime for blacks or whites. Yeah. And a basketball team and a, and a tennis team. tournament. I mean, yeah. like he he just he he kept organizing and I kept thinking, it's so interesting that the man who's like the boss, the chief, you know, of all of these red caps is also like so involved in organizing extracurricular activities and enrichment activities for these men. Yeah. And they're not exactly extracurricular in the sense that they are always ways of sort of demonstrating your, you know, obviously your talents, either whether they're musical or athletic. But these kinds of activities are ways of community building. They give people a common language, uh, a common uh, topics to talk about. Uh, the nature of their, their competitiveness is, you know, it's not, it's not about guns and bullets. And, you know, it's, uh, uh-huh. it's all of that. But also, if you take the baseball team in particular, they're representing Grand Central, not just themselves as African-Americans, but if, on their jerseys. And there's a picture of this in the book where you see Grand Central's logo. Mm-hmm. If you imagine if you're living in this time in the, in, in the salad days of railroad travel, when you think of travel, they are part of the Red Caps are part of the iconography of your experience, your traveling experience. And, and the Grand Central team is, is out there in the public eye, largely because of Williams creating these organizations that puts them there. And so much else happens in the 19-teens. We've got Grand Central Terminal opening on February 2nd, 1913. There is, of course, World War One, and many of the Red Caps, as you write, would actually serve abroad. They would serve with the 369th Regiment, the Harlem Hellfighters, which we just did a whole show about exactly, um, a few months yes. ago. So his men would go off. I mean, having served the country, they would come back to jobs as Red Caps. Right. So uh, the Red Caps are prominent in the theater of war uh, as part of the, uh, you know, the, most of the guys are, are Harlem based, uh, but the 369th Regiment, otherwise known as the Harlem Hellfighters. And Williams was very well known for having uh, rallied a lot of his workers to buy Liberty Bonds, which was uh, mm-hmm. served the, the war relief but also to send supplies to a lot of the black soldiers, many of them who had come out of the station, uh, sweaters and gloves and scarves. So they were very much involved. And then when they came back from the war, those who were blessed to come back, uh, many of them found themselves facing another war, which is America's oldest story of discrimination and having to return, even if they were decorated heroes, back to jobs that were essentially menial jobs like the Red Caps. Yeah. And you write about the Hellfighters March on February 17th, 1919, um, which took place up Lenox Avenue to 145th Street in Harlem, uh, where thousands of these returning soldiers marched, and which some would consider to be the kickoff of the Harlem Renaissance. There is so much more to discuss, including William's role in the Harlem Renaissance and the career of his son, Wesley, which we haven't even talked about yet, which um, a career that would quickly surpass his in terms of fame at the time, at least. We'll hear more about James Williams and the Red Caps of Grand Central right after this. 
On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. You can live out your MasterChef dreams. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. So before we get into the 1920s, uh, let's just talk for a minute about James Williams' son, Wesley, who yes. was considered, and you write, the, quote, most famous Williams. Now, by 1918, Wesley, who was quite an athletic, strapping young guy, had been working at Penn Station as a red cap, but he had his eyes set on something higher than that. Tell us about it. So Wesley Williams had been red capping at Penn Station, uh, but also was working as a postal carrier, uh, which was introducing him to a lot of the city. And he had his sights on doing something much more than either red capping or working for the post office. And what is it he wanted to do? There's a lot of pressure at the time to have an African-American on the fire department in Manhattan. There had already been one elsewhere. And Wesley becomes a logical choice, whether or not he had his sights on that in the beginning. He's a logical choice for this. 
He's a strapping, athletic young man. Uh, he's kind of this perfect figure. He's even described as a Superman. And uh, he takes the examination. There are 1,700 men who take this, young men who take the examination for the fire department. He is the only one who's black. He's also the only one who passes 100% on the physical examination. You've probably seen wow. the picture of him wow. in the book, which kind of I, says, yeah, it, I get it. The, the photo, you know, photos do sometimes speak a thousand words, is it? Yeah. yeah. Google that one, folks. If you buy the book for no other reason than to see the picture. <laughs> <laughs> well, he would, let's just say he was into bodybuilding. Yes. He was this physical specimen. He was more than just a, a, a bodybuilder. He was a teetotaler. He didn't smoke. Uh, he had this strict sort of philosophical regimen. And it also came in handy. It was, it was a strategy, as it was emphasized by friends, once he passed the test, that there's going to be trouble because there's, there will be resentment. You're going to get you know, called out and, and challenged, and you're going to have to fight. <laughs> be, he, because there were no African-Americans on the entire fire department force. In, in Manhattan. In Manhattan. In Manhattan. And they wanted to keep it that way. And they wanted to keep it that way. So, uh, so his first day... Uh, January 6th, 1919, mm -hmm. which coincidentally was the day that one of his recommenders, Theodore Roosevelt, died. When he starts, when he shows up at the station on Broom Street, and it's still an active fire state, firehouse, Engine 55, uh, the captain resigns. He walks out. And then all the other firemen ask for transfers, which is denied them. They're, they're told they have to stay there at least a year. And that's how he starts. That's day one. That's day one. How was that bearable? How did he end up even serving in that station? I think Wesley was he was prepared for this. It wasn't a surprise. It was certainly a disappointment. But given the zeitgeist of, of the time and the prevalent segregation and discrimination, it was not a surprise. He was prepared. And he made the most of it. So in his own words, you know, when they when he went upstairs, they came downstairs. But he used that opportunity to take advantage of using the roof. And he set up sort of a a makeshift gym on the roof and he worked out he read the other guys were doing whatever and uh, his locker was filled with books so he was an avid reader but he also made other allegiances in that neighborhood the neighborhood was little italy at the time yeah. and there was a sort of a, an antagonism between italian americans and irish americans and the fire and the firemen were mostly irish right and so if they weren't going to talk to him, the Italians were like, it, it not, I wouldn't say that they were overly enthusiastic about blacks, but maybe they didn't hate him as much at the time or as they did the Irish. And it was also kind of timely that it was the beginning of prohibition. And we don't have time to get into it, unfortunately, right now, but there is an amazing story that you cover in the book about how Wesley actually plays a part in prohibition. In fact, driving booze around the city because he's able to drive trucks. Yes, because he's being ostracized by the, his fellow firemen who are mostly Irish. He does get along with the neighboring Italian community and becomes uh -huh. an essential part of the prohibition economy because he's able to drive and he can traffic booze throughout the city. And meanwhile, his fellow firemen were not even letting him sleep on the same floor or, or they placed him... What, in the bed next to the toilet? Right. They often, uh, he was often relegated to this bed by the toilet, by the john. You know, so, and this was problematic in a lot of firehouses over the decades as they increasingly became integrated, but not so much. It was always a, a tug of war uh, to get blacks 
hired in, in the force, uh, more so than in the police department. So that's Wesley, the firstborn son of James Williams, um, who's breaking through his own color barrier at the FDNY. Um, back uptown to his father and mother, they have since moved. They, they had moved for a few years up to the Bronx, but by 1919, they had moved back down to Harlem. Yes. So about 1911, there's sort of an exodus of Harlemites uh, particularly if they have kids, to move up to the Bronx, specifically to the Williamsbridge section of the Bronx, which constitutes more or less a suburb of Harlem because most of the people's social life is still connected to Harlem. So Wesley has a, the shank of his teen years in Williamsbridge. And after a lot of their, the kids have grown up, a lot of those parents move back to Harlem proper, as did Chief Williams and, and his wife and some of the other kids in the family. And where did they move exactly in Harlem? They moved to, um, in uh, 1920, they are one of the first black families that move onto the exclusive Strivers Row, uh, this enclave in central Harlem that has finally opened up to African-Americans. It was built in, in the late 19th century. So once again, really at the forefront here, of African-American families, in this case, moving on to Strivers Row. Exactly. And it, again, because of the company he keeps, who, who you know, his neighbors, you know, W.C. Handy, Harold Pace, various doctors and lawyers and professional people, high-profile people. Williams is part of that circle. Because as the chief, he has a high profile. Yes, Williams has a high profile because he serves a really important function in the black community where it's always hard to get jobs, jobs that you are deserving of and are often overqualified for, but you're cut out of because of the color line. And because he has this, he's created this gateway at Grand Central for particularly, not exclusively, but particularly young black students who need to defray their, their college costs like any college student. This is considered a vital function, a vital role that he has. And I think one of the things that people often forget about when we think of the Harlem Renaissance, it's not just about the music, mm-hmm. the, the musical culture, the performance culture, but a lot of it uh, represents labor and the, opportun- the culture of opportunity that opens up, which students are vital to, you know, getting your degrees, to, uh, which enables the community to have more doctors, more lawyers, more clergy, mm-hmm. uh, more professional people. So a lot of them would go on and look back at their experiences working as Red Caps and particularly at Grand Central under Williams as being essential to their having been able to finish getting a college education. Do you think that Red Caps re- regarded James Williams as a kind of mentor? Did he offer them advice? Or I kind of got the impression from your book that they sort of feared him. I, it's, Again, you know, when I try to get a bead on Williams, uh, and obviously because he dealt with literally hundreds of people, and, and so there was not a, a consensus as to his personality. So there were a number of people who said they feared him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Lester Granger was one. And that might have been because Williams caught him when he was supposed to be at work at the house wooing Williams' daughter. daughter. <laughs> um, <laughs> and if you'll see a picture of his daughter in the book, you could see, who wouldn't? Yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, but also, I think there were people who considered him a mentor because he was known for going out of his way to encourage people who he saw were clearly in pursuit of something bigger. Yeah. And so he was very flexible. Uh, one of the people I talk about in the book was this actor, Richard Huey, who Williams was reluctant by Huey's account to hire, 
you know, maybe it was because, you know, the way people think of actors today is like, oh, they'll, they'll be out of here. They won't have a sense of responsibility or whatever. It probably helped Huey that he had a letter of recommendation from W.E.B. Du Bois. It wouldn't hurt. Yeah, it wouldn't hurt. So he's a mentor. He's encouraging people. He's teaching tact. Um, he's starting these benevolent societies and these artistic organizations, athletic organizations. And yet the family is also surprisingly or unsurprisingly super connected you know, to other figures in the Harlem Renaissance. I mean, you write about their youngest daughter, Catherine, taking part in Alelia Walker's wedding in November of 1923. We're talking about Harlem royalty here. Exactly. Uh, his youngest daughter, Catherine, uh, well, she was one of the three flower girls at the, the famous Million Dollar Wedding where there were purportedly 9,000 guests invited. Uh, I'd hate to be the one assigned to writing out all those invitations. But think uh, of all the flowers. I hope that I hope that Thorley got the job. You, you know, it's not really clear, but it would not surprise me. So he's connected to Harlem aristocracy, namely Alelia Walker, who's the daughter and heiress of Madam C.J. Walker, the first self-made African-American millionaire which is to say she didn't marry into her wealth you know, from her own industry. Mm -hmm. And those Venn circles of connections that are part of the, the Walker heritage, but also part of his own. So all of these circles that he's intermingling with, both black and white, you know. Yeah, yeah, because at the same time then, so his daughter is in Elile Walker's wedding. Another daughter, Gertrude, was modeling and holding down a job as a manicurist. Right. His his oldest daughter, his second child, she's born a year after Wesley in 1898. Also beautiful. She's famously beautiful. She actually wins pageants for her beauty and very specifically for her uh, bobbed hair. She was a flapper so, you know, in, yeah. in the 20s, you know, but she was um, famous as, a, as, as for her bobbed hair. She had her own theatrical ambitions, which she seems to have let drop. But she doesn't go too far afield because she becomes a well-known manicurist in Harlem. So she still literally has a hand in. Oh, <laughs> oh did I say that? You know. I love it. I love it. It's a, <laughs> it's a hands-on <laughs> hands job. So then, and then meanwhile, Wesley is down on Broom Street, literally saving people from burning buildings. And their father, James, is running this whole show of all of these hundreds of red caps at this point. Meanwhile, he is himself welcoming people like Governor Al Smith and also New York City Playboy Mayor Jimmy Walker. You've got a great photo of him. You know, the two of them it looks like... Uh, you feel like you just missed a joke when you're looking at the photo. They're both <laughs> laughing. It's like they're old friends, you know, walking from a train. So this family is so connected. It's incredible. Yeah. This is also considered one of... Uh, one of the essences of, of Williams's personality, his ability to navigate. And there's one particular story that maybe I can throw it in. Yeah. But when Wesley is positioned to be promoted to lieutenant in 1927, it's said that he's going to get the lieutenancy, but they are going to immediately give him a desk job, which will remove him from visibility and public view of a black overseeing whites. So obviously this is problematic. And his father then goes into his particular talent. He writes a letter, which I show, uh, have in the book, yeah. to Cardinal Hayes, expressing that Wesley wishes to remain at the Broom Street uh, station. And so this is very telling of the influence that Williams has. Do we know if Cardinal Hayes responded? 
We don't know if he responded, but we do know that Wesley was not given a desk job and he remained for most of his career in the, in the fire department at Engine 55 on Broome Street, as was his wish. So um, it's very likely that, that, you know, his father, Chief Williams, was able to bring this influence to bear on his behalf. Oh, you've got letters in there that you found of uh, correspondence between Williams and Eleanor Roosevelt and others. It's, it's amazing the, the reach that this man had. So the 1930s were obviously a tricky time, as we've just been talking about in a couple of shows on the, the New Deal and New York City. The 1930s were tricky, I'm sure, as well for Grand Central, for the Red Caps, although people were still traveling. Was this a hard time to be a Red Cap? I think the 1930s was a hard time to be a, a red cap uh, in as much as people were traveling less. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're probably having to hustle more to have, if you're de- certainly if you're dependent on, upon tips. And people are always looking for extra jobs. So there were people who had their degrees. They had their practices. Maybe they were doctors, but they were moonlighting as red caps. They weren't letting go of that. Yeah. So, yes, it, you know, it was a hard time for everybody. It wasn't like the salad days of the 1920s. But they seemed, you know, obviously people were still traveling and there was still a need that people perceived for this service. And they continued. And it was also a hard time personally for James uh, because he would lose his wife, Lucy, on September 30th of 1932. Yeah. The loss of his wife, uh, Lucy, in 1932 precipitates him selling the house on Strivers Row, which he sells in 1935. He had just moved with Lucy probably the year before she died to uh, the Dunbar houses, which were built uh, exclusively for black families just before the stock market crashes, which, of course, he could not foresee. So when Williams moves in and he's living there in the 30s until he dies in 1948, it's uh, often called Celebrity House, uh, which is telling of all the celebrities who lived there. Uh, Yeah, which deserves its own show. Yeah, Just the the roster of his neighbors and the fact that, of course, he was also regarded as one of the celebrities who lived there. Maybe the 30s also heightens, though, the paradox of who is doing this job. It was not uncommon to see uh, headlines in magazines like in the New Yorker or Ken or various periodicals such as PhD carries your bags. Mm. Um, So that paradox that here were men who were overly qualified. It was said that maybe, I think it was 40% of the Red Caps had some college training, which no other department in, in the station had. But they were blocked in their career trajectory solely because of race. They were blocked in their uh, professional pursuits because of race. But because many of these young men were, were going to school. Oh, uh, they were still students. Yeah, many of them were, were still students. This was, was enabling them to stay in school. And people, students were coming, particularly in summer months or at holiday times, from HBCUs in the South, from New England schools, Ivy League schools, mm-hmm. uh, and local schools like Columbia here. It was often the first time that black students from different regions in the eastern United States were actually meeting each other for the first time and creating lifelong bonds, many of them. And Williams was extremely proud of the fact that um, you know his department of Red Caps had more college-trained students, and some of them had already had their degrees and and were still moonlighting. They were famously educated as a department, and this was often the subject of a lot of, you know, articles at the time, that it it made no sense, you know, that this is what they have to do. By the early 1940s, even by 1939, Red Caps were beginning to organize. 
um, around the country and also here at Grand Central. How did the chief feel about the formation of a labor union here at Grand Central for the Red Caps? You know, my sense is that, you know, Williams was management. So he was not directly involved in the unionization of the Red Caps. Uh, my impression was that he was strategically silent on the matter so as not to interfere with it. My own sense is that he was sympathetic, yeah. given w- what I know about, it, about his past uh, action. But I know that there was also uh, the argument that unionizing these Red Caps would also could result in them getting a lower income because there might be lower tips or there was a standardization to the payment that that hadn't existed to this point. Was it possible that the red caps would actually lose money by unionizing? Yeah. And the and red caps across the country were not uniformly in agreement with the terms that were a result of unionizing because some felt and particularly in New York that they were losing money. They were making less because people who traditionally gave them, you know, who were big, you know, big tippers mm-hmm. um, were perhaps less inclined because it, the regulation was that they would get a certain amount per bag. And then it, they also made it a bit more bureaucratic where you had to declare uh, the amount that you made each day and what have you. So people weren't were not uniformly for it. But on the other hand, there was probably much more uniformity in much more agreement because they had benefits that would have come with as a result of unionizing more job stability. Uh, they weren't so easily expendable if, if just by the whim of a, a manager who might decide that, you know. Right. And the Red Caps would vote to unionize and Grand Central Terminal and also the, the New York Central Railroad would recognize their union. Yes. So uh, they ultimately did unionize and uh, New York Central and other railroad companies around the country uh, recognized, were forced to recognize uh, the union, and they became ultimately known as the uh, UTSEA, United Transit Service Employees of America. But of course, a lot was was on the horizon here. I mean, in the mid-1940s, we're obviously seeing another world war in which many red caps would serve again. Um, But then after the war... A lot was about to happen. I mean, Americans would be embracing driving and flying instead of taking the long distance trains. Would this then bring about the downfall of this entire red cap system? I think the change in how people traveled um, had a huge impact on uh, factoring in the sort of disintegration of this system. Uh, There are still red caps in some stations, but it's a very different kind of thing, uh, particularly because it's not based on being relegated by race. So I would say that by the 1940s, post-war, the mode of travel is already starting to change the viability of red capping uh, as an occupation. People are driving more, superhighways are being built, people are starting to fly a lot more. Uh, So the age of, of rail is giving way to new preferences for for traveling. And in the midst of all those changes then, on May 4th, 1948, James Williams died. And he died just before retiring? Yes, so James Williams dies on May 4th, 1948, uh, just a few months shy of his 70th birthday, and he talked about retiring at 70. After almost a half a century, working at the same job. So it's rather sad. In many ways, it was timely in the sense that 
the industry is about to change mm -hmm. drastically. And Williams was buried here in New York. So Williams is buried in the Bronx at the famous Woodlawn Cemetery. And uh, many of his neighbors in the cemetery are, were neighbors of his in life on Strivers Row and in the Dunbar Apartments. Mm. Like W.C. Handy is like a few steps away. Yeah. So it, in, in, many, in, in many ways, he still has the same company. He's keeping the same company. <laughs> if we wanted to feel his presence today, Grand Central, is there a place that we can go to sort of imagine where these red caps would have been? Where do you go if you want to sort of connect with that red cap history in Grand Central? So in Grand Central, there aren't any specific places that will tell you that there were red caps here as there ought to be. But you can see, and you'll, readers of the book will see uh, track 30 on the main concourse, mm -hmm. and you can see the balcony above. That was Williams's office, and I'm doing air quotes <laughs> as I say this. You can imagine easily him standing up there where he had this great vantage point of all of the passengers, and by their uniform, the red caps, and by race, where his men were dispersed, and he would blow on his whistle to be able to signal like and, and wave, like, go over there, go over there. So if you go to Grand Central today and you walk down to track 30, um, that's over on the western side, right, toward Vanderbilt Avenue? Exactly, on the western side. And look up at the balcony. And just look at the balcony. Imagine him standing there. And I know, I know this is a big sort of end-of-show question, but in your mind today, you know, how is James Williams' story relevant to us? What is his lasting legacy? What do we take away from his story? I think Williams is remarkable in that I, I'm not really interested. I've never been interested in celebrating the job. The job was, was hard. It was arduous and it was unfair. But I think part of his lasting legacy was uh, particularly in this time of Black Lives Matter and this consciousness that's being driven not just throughout the country but around the world is that this was pretty much the same theme during Williams's time and he was one of those people who was devoted to making sure that his his people got a fair shake and uh, what they were entitled to according to the Constitution and according to what was morally just right in being an American and I think it's his lasting legacy is that is a significant reminder that we didn't give up, we stayed in, and we, we did what we could. We made a way out of no way, as the African-American expression has it, to make something better, to make something fair. And to a large part, he was, he was quite successful in doing that in, in terms of the people who came out of his, his, his system, whose names are, many of which are still familiar today, like Paul Robeson and Adam Clayton Powell Jr., you know, whether they worked there for a weekend, a week, a season, or for many years. Well, thank you for bringing his story to us. The book is Boss of the Grips, The Life of James H. Williams and the Red Caps of Grand Central Terminal by Eric K. Washington. It's published by Live Right, and it's the winner of a Herbert Lehman Prize for History. Eric Washington, thank you so much for being on the Bowery Boys. Thank you, Tom. Thanks for having me. And listener, thank you for joining us as well. And a special thanks to every one of our patrons out there who have joined Greg and me on patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. People ask us all the time, how have we been able to produce the Bowery Boys full time? And the answer is simple. It's only because of the continued support of our patrons. 
especially during these tricky times. So we can't thank you enough. As a special thank you, we do have patron-only audio extras, including the Bowery Boys Movie Club and The Takeout. You can listen to these and join us at patreon.com slash boweryboys. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com. So thank you so much for listening, and have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. You can live out your MasterChef dream when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.